This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Mother Knows Death presents External Exams with Nicole and Jemmy. Hi guys, welcome to this week's episode of Mother Knows Death and the External Exam with Dr. Michelle Miranda. A few weeks ago on Mother Knows Death, Maria and I were discussing a case in the news where there was a woman who was killed 31 years ago and she was recently identified by her tattoo. So of course, the first person that I thought of talking to was Dr. Miranda because she is a forensic scientist who is an expert in the identification and the forensics of tattoos. So hi, Michelle. How are you doing? Hi, good. I'm doing quite well. How are you? Great. Thanks so much for being here today. I think this is going to be an excellent interview and everybody's going to love everything that we're talking about today. But before we get started with the case that we were discussing in the news a few weeks ago, I wanted everyone to know a little bit about your background and how you became a pioneer in this field. You got it. So I was originally a bio pre-med major in college. I knew pretty much my whole life I wanted to be a doctor and I wanted to go into the medical field. So that was like an easy kind of path to get me into, uh, you know, a a program in bio. Uh, And it was my senior year. And uh, I attended a lecture on campus. And I recommend anybody like that is in school or has kids in school. That's like one of the things you get outside the classroom is like attending talks when they have like guest speakers. And so that for me was awesome because the guest speaker actually was from a medical examiner's office and she came to talk about uh, the ME's office and she came to talk about forensic DNA analysis and all this stuff. And I'll preface this by saying this was way before CSI. Uh, I won't tell you all how old I am, but it was before CSI. But so I sat and I was like, oh, my God, this is like amazing. This is so interesting to me. I like I love this. And I had, you know, taken like genetics and taken mold bio. And so I had a knowledge of this. But like when you actually see it outside of a classroom, outside of a textbook, like that real world uh, you know, application, it just can make so much of a difference. And so I ran up to her after and I was like, I love this. I want to learn more. Can I intern with you? Can I do something? Uh, and she was like, yeah, sure. So my senior year, my last semester, while everyone was out partying and having like a great time, I was this idiot that decided I was going to do an internship. I decided I was going to take on another minor. So I was already uh, majoring in bio and then minoring in chemistry. So I added a minor in criminal justice because I wanted to learn about the criminal justice aspect because of the forensic realm. And so my senior year, I was going from the Bronx where I was uh, at Manhattan College and I was taking the bus all the way to the medical examiner's office in New York City. So I was on the bus for like hours to get there, to go 
um, sit with this individual to learn about the lab, to learn about forensic DNA analysis, to help her with her samples. Uh, and so it was a really awesome experience that um, drew me into like this whole forensic realm. And so I kind of changed my course from there instead of, uh, you know, taking exams or continuing to take MCAT study exams um, uh, or practice exams. I decided that I wanted to get my master's in forensic science. And so what I did was I ended up applying to John Jay and their master's program in forensic science and kind of put my like medical plan on hold, you know, thinking that I would go for pathology. So now I'm like, okay, I'll do forensic pathology. Um, and then when I started um, experiencing the master's program and learning about trace evidence and traces, you know, like the hairs, the fibers, uh, glass, paint, but also like the microscopy, the spectroscopy, the way that like you analyze these things and can get so much information from a small sample. I was like, this is it. This is for me. And so from there, I started working at the NYPD as a criminalist. And then I decided to go back to my doctorate. And that kind of led me down the path of the tattoos. That's that's so great. And I love a couple different things that you said. Number one, you have to keep this in mind because yeah. you and I are around the same age. We won't say our age. <laughs> but um, we kind of started off, I guess this was like in the, the 90s, right? When like you started going to college and everything and the same with me. And it's like, we didn't have all these things that, that kids have today, like TV shows that talked about these different jobs, especially ones that women could do. And also we didn't have the internet to, to find out about it. And it's cool that you had this lecture with this lady. And then you just, I think this is really important for anyone. Like just you approached her and, and showed your, your eagerness and just said, I, I love this and I, and like help me figure out how to do this with my life kind of thing. And um I think that's like really important and awesome and how you got that awesome opportunity at the medical examiner's office, which then kind of shaped where you went on from there. So you said that you were working at the for the NYPD crime lab. And I also know that you worked for the medical examiner's office, too, at some point. So can you explain to everyone the difference between like doing forensics and and crime scene stuff at the police department versus the medical examiner and how the two of those different teams work together to help solve crimes sure so um one of the things i just want to add is like it, it was important to hustle like i did not take like a very traditional route um because when i went to the nypd uh, I stayed there for a while and then I decided to go back for my doctorate. And then while I was going to my doctorate is when I just wanted to see as much as I could. And so I took all these opportunities that came to me, like working uh, as a medical photographer, forensic photographer um, during autopsies, uh, and then also working as like a, uh, you know, part-time uh, death investigator. So that was one of the keys to kind of me being a generalist forensic scientist, which is someone who has like this broad knowledge. You know, I use like the cool crime scene to the court kind of um, ideal. And it was experiencing all of these different things. And from doing that, not only did I see where like you're asking things are interconnected, right? And everybody's trying to work together to solve a crime or work a case, but also where there's disconnects. And right? in forensic science, we talk about like silos, about how like, 
there tends to not be a lot of really good communication between, say, law enforcement, the crime lab, the medical examiner, and, uh, you know, the the prosecutor or the um, defense attorney, right? Then everything can be kind of segmented. Uh, but in the end, we all are trying to work together towards a common goal. And so at the NYPD working in the crime lab, you're in the crime lab. So you're working um, a full day, eight hours in a crime lab. Like a lot of people think that they'll be running around at crime scenes in, you know, heels and driving hovers <laughs> and carrying a firearm and, you know, slamming someone up against a wall and asking them to confess. You know, it's not like the TV shows. So you have like your crime scene people uh, and in New York City, crime scene are sworn detectives. Uh, so there's not a lot of civilians running around at crime scenes when you look at um, the way we're structured in New York. Um, then you have the crime lab, which is a mixture of civilians and law enforcement, depending on where in the lab that they work. Um, and so there I was in the trace unit. So that was, again, looking at different types of traces uh, from gunshot residue to uh, hairs, fibers, glass, paint, um, uh, to chemical unknowns, something was thrown in a person's face. We don't know what this is, uh, kind of stuff. Uh, so it was a, a mixture of everything. And then uh, you have other parts of the lab as well, like firearms, uh, drug analysis, right? So everybody's kind of structured doing their thing in a crime lab, and you pretty much stay confined to the lab. I was lucky enough um, in that my first area of expertise was gunshot residue. So I happened to get involved in a lot of interesting cases uh, with shootings, with police-involved shootings. And so I actually was lucky in that on a couple occasions I was able to go to crime scenes or I was able to see like if there was a vehicle involved. But it's not very typical of the criminalist in the crime lab to kind of venture out all over the place. Uh, then you have separate, you know, and again, I'll mostly talk about New York, separate is the medical examiner's office. And so they're uh, doing, you have, you know, the pathologists in the autopsy suite, uh, you have the toxicologists that are getting samples, looking at whatever drugs they're recovering or poisons from the body. Uh, and then you have the DNA people, right? The criminalists that are doing DNA analysis. And again, it's very siloed. It's very separate. So like a piece of evidence may travel from the crime scene to the NYPD lab for trace analysis, then over to the OCME for DNA analysis, right? So everybody's kind of working separately, but maybe working with the same type of evidence. And then usually the detective assigned to the case and or, you know, the prosecutor uh, are the ones that kind of put that picture together and kind of work to reconstruct what may have happened based upon what they saw along this whole chain. I think that's it's important because I, I do hear a lot of people that are now, you know, the, the kids that are growing up now have access to all these TV shows, including like forensic files and and then the fake ones like CSI and things like that, but also just the Internet and just everything that's going on. And I think a lot of people don't know that there is a difference between the medical aspect of it and more of like the science aspect of it. So if people want to want to go to school for forensics, they may sign up and think that they're doing autopsies and stuff, but that wasn't really part of of training for you, right? As a forensic scientist. Right. It was more of like the actual looking under a microscope and doing chemical analysis and all these like actual lab tests. Yeah. So forensic 
science and even that buzzword forensics is very sexy now, right? So back when I started, there were like three really well-known universities that had forensic science programs on the East Coast. Uh, nowadays, they're everywhere, right? So you get individuals, all walks of life, just kind of starting these forensics programs all over. And there's a really big difference. Um, what I recommend when I am asked uh, for my advice, uh, I suggest to people to get a science degree, not even to get a forensic science degree, because exactly like you're saying, you may go for a forensic science education and yeah, you may get some science, uh, you know, but you're getting like, then you get like a crime scene investigation class, right? Most people don't go on to, you know, do crime scene investigation and most a different story for other day was my feelings on crime scene investigation, because you're really not learning the skills involved in crime scene investigation that help you to think properly, you know, critically think, problem solve, reconstruct. You're basically, you know, crime scene investigation classes are like, here's how you pick things up and wear protective equipment. So um, the, the problem is if you get like a forensic science education is you may, and again, this is my own opinion, depending on the program, depending on the educators, you may not get like good science education, right? And also, as you're saying too, if I have a degree in biology pre-med, right? And I go work in a crime lab and I hate it. I just hate it. I do it for a couple of years. I'm like, okay, I thought it was going to be like TV. It's not like TV. I'm miserable. If I have that bio degree, I can go take that bio degree and work a lot of places or decide to go to medical school, decide to go to graduate school, whatever, when you have a forensic science degree, you may not have those same opportunities, right? So you want to go work in a lab and they're like, oh, you have a forensic science degree. We're looking someone with a bio degree or for, with a chemistry degree, right? Especially if they look at your coursework and they say, hey, half of your forensic science classes are social sciences like forensic psychology and crime scene investigation, you know, so you may not be viewed as having a real degree in the natural sciences, and so that's one of the, you know, sort of weaknesses that I identified because, you know, regulating forensic science programs, you know, can be a little iffy. So, yeah, I mean, it's going to be very difficult for someone that graduates with a forensic science degree to potentially uh, get into medical school down the line if they decide they hate forensic science or the crime lab, whether they want to do pathology or something else. And I feel like you have more opportunities if you say have that bio or chemistry degree and then kind of switch your way. But definitely they're different, you know, going for forensic science. And I've had students ask me this before. They're like, oh, how long um, until I get to do autopsies? How many classes do I have to take before I could do autopsies? And you're just like, oh my God, <laughs> like it breaks your heart, you know, because you're like, no, this is not, that's not what's happening. But yeah, there are distinct differences um, between the career paths. And so I tell people, take the forensic away from whatever you want to do, whether it's pathology, science, uh, psychology, remove the word forensic. And just what does it take to be a psychologist, a scientist, a pathologist? And then, you know, look at what these jobs entail. Look at what the career path entails, because the forensic is sort of the application of these sciences to criminal justice problems. Yeah, I agree with you. There's a huge disconnect between like what the jobs actually are and then what kids are going to college for. And that happened in my program, too. Like I went for a master's in path as a pathologist assistant, but I knew what the job was because I was already working in the hospital. So I knew when I graduated, like what I was going to be doing. 
But so many girls that were in my program didn't even know what they would really be doing as a job. And some of them really don't want to do it as a job. But since it's so specific, it's like you can't get a job anywhere else doing anything. Like if you give a master's as, as a PA, you can't go be a nurse or anything. You'd have to go back to school all over again. So sometimes a broader degree works better sometimes. Yeah. And that's, I mean, I always, you know, say like, this is my opinion. I would uh, rather see you go get a degree in biology, get a degree in chemistry, and then apply it to forensic science. And, and uh, you know, and then I say, if you want to, after you get the undergraduate degree, then consider a graduate degree in forensic science where you could learn better how to apply it or use these analytical techniques to analyze traces and specific stuff like that. But yeah, if you don't, you know, get the proper education, it could screw you all up. And I feel terrible when I see like criminal justice majors, you know, that come to me in their senior year and they're like, I want to be a forensic scientist. And I'm like, oh, God. Like you're getting a, a bio, you know, a, a criminal justice degree, like the, you're like completely off the path. And then they're like, well, I was advised by a high school guidance counselor or, you know, I thought that, uh, you know, and so some of that can be really heartbreaking if you don't check what's required, you know. Yeah, I wish there was a way that they could really interview people before they start school, because it's not even just a matter of the time that you put in and waste towards a degree, but it's so much money. and. I know, like even one of my great friends, she doesn't really want to be a PA anymore. And she would put the time in to go back to school to be like a nurse practitioner or something. But she just doesn't, she she can't afford it. Yeah. Like to go back to school for two years at a graduate program is a lot considering it's kind of a lateral move financially, right? So, but I think that a lot of people aren't, aren't, um, educated enough as to like what they're signing up for and you do hear stories like that all the time of people saying these things and you're like oh dude you're like way you're way off and then you feel bad you know yeah, yeah. um so let's get into the, your work with forensics and tattoos before you really started all of your research and everything it it, it was really not talked about that much you're the one that is the the pioneer in this field so to speak how did what was it that got you interested in this specific niche thing of tattoos? And what? how did you think that it would be a really good tool to use for forensic investigations? So it was a dark and stormy night. when. Uh, <laughs> so I was in my doctoral program. And as part of a doctoral program, you take courses. You have to do a doctoral dissertation. You have to do original research. And I was really jaded. I was in, uh, you know, like I had been through a forensic science uh, under, uh, I mean, graduate program. I had worked at the police department and I kind of hit this point where I was actually really jaded with forensic science. And I still even find myself these days like getting like that because you started hearing about wrongful convictions. You start to hear about, uh, you know, quote, crime lab scandals, you know, where there may be an analyst that's dry labbing or an analyst that's, you know, taking drugs or you know, stealing drugs. So all this stuff started to kind of like compound. And I'm like, what am I doing here? Right. On top of that, you have CSI and you have, you know, people that are like, oh, I can do this. You know, I, uh, you know, I was in high school. I did a crime scene. Uh, you know, like a course and I can be a, you know, forensic scientist. And so I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. And I was ready to actually just completely leave the field. And um, actually, I, I really got into art and art conservation. 
um, which I've written about a little bit with like the intersection between art and forensic science. Um, and so my mentor at the time came up to me and he was like, I'll introduce you to someone. Like, we'll see if we can get you doing like somehow like art fraud or investigations and all that kind of fun stuff. And so at this time that I was like completely jaded with forensic science and trying to figure out what the hell to do with myself, there were two cases that I was periphery to uh, that happened uh, at the around the same time that just really changed the course for me again. So I was working with my mentor on a private case where he was hired as a consultant. He was like, hey, come work this case with me. Uh, and it was a man who had claimed to be sexually assaulted by law enforcement officers. Uh, and so we were looking at the clothing of this individual uh, because based on his story, this was an assault. And so his clothing was damaged during the assault. And we looked at his clothing and we're looking at it microscopically and we're like, there's some really weird, like black stains, like some inky, weird stains here. And so we approached the lawyer and we said, look, we're finding this black inky residue like around this hole. Uh, so we'd really like to look at it further. We'd like to do some analysis on it to see what this ink may be, et cetera, et cetera. And so we did an analysis and we we're really trying to figure it out. And um, the lawyer comes back and he's like, I want to just fill you in. Uh, we think that the individual uh, who made the complaint, uh, who happens to be a tattoo artist, may have made the hole himself. And is it possible that maybe he used like a tattoo machine or something that may have had ink on it? And so we were like, hmm, right? So we were like, this is interesting because this uh, material keeps coming up as like some inky substance. And so from that, uh, you know, I realized there's really no good solid like database of like tattoo ink. So like what they are, what they contain, all that kind of fun stuff. And not from the perspective of like, these things are going to kill you if you inject them in your skin um, as a tattooed individual, whatevs. Um, but more from the approach of like for a forensic database, from a forensic perspective, like how do we know what's in these inks if we find human remains, if there's like some discoloration, could we figure out what if it's an ink, if it's a pigment, you know, so my brain started like swirling. So at the same time, um, one of my colleagues that uh, was a death investigator, she's like, yo, she's like, you missed a case today. And she's like, it was crazy. So the case involved uh, a body was found set on fire in a park. And so the fire was put out, uh, realized it's a body, and now it's charred beyond recognition, right? So no fingerprints, no facial features, whatever. Um, so the body comes into the autopsy suite, and during the autopsy, uh, there's someone, right? So the investigators are there. Uh, my friend is there with my colleague, uh, the pathologist, and they're looking at this and someone sees some discoloration. And so the pathologist scrapes off the, the burnt charred skin uh, and a tattoo appears, right? That had not been destroyed. And so they were able to resolve the entirety of the tattoo um, and a name was in it. And so this was photographed and law enforcement was able to use this to basically go around and say, do you recognize this tattoo? Right. And so from there, they were able to identify who the individual was, uh, you know, identify potential suspects linked to a bunch of other uh, criminal activity that had been going on uh, with the partner. Right. And then uh, the case ended up being going to court, being adjudicated. And this man was found guilty. And so 
it was perfect timing because on this one hand, I'm looking at tattoo inks. And then on the other hand, I'm looking at this case where this tattoo was necessary to identify this investigation forward. And I was like, blink, that was it. It was like light bulb went off. I'm like, this is where I'm meant to be. And so that sort of the long version of how I ended up going down this strange road of, of tattoos in a forensic context. That's so cool. And and that brings us to the news story that we were talking about a few weeks ago. And of course, when I texted you, you were like, yeah, I'm on top of that. Like I heard, <laughs> you know, I heard about that. But just briefly, I'm going to just explain what happened. There was a, 31 years ago, a British woman was found dead. She was found murdered in Belgium. And they didn't know who she was all of this time, and she was just given the, the name the woman with the flower tattoo. And then there was an international campaign was set up to try to identify these 22 women that have been killed over the years to see who they were. And a website was created, and they put a picture of this tattoo that was, it was a flower tattoo that had the letters R and then the name Nick, R Nick, in it. And sure enough, someone saw the photograph and thought they they sent in a tip and they thought that it was one of their family members. And then they were able to identify the woman as Rita Rogers and uh, finally give some peace to her family because she just went missing one day and they never knew what happened to her. Um, I, I just think that that's such a cool story. And it sounds like almost similar to what happened in your case. Um, so besides we kind of briefly talked about this, but maybe we could just go in depth about it a little bit more. So you have you have the one aspect where you're looking at the tattoo itself that could be used as identification. And then you're also you also could use tattoos and forensics in other cases as far as looking at it under the microscope and the the pigments and stuff, correct? Yeah. So there's a lot that can be done with tattoos and from my perspective, I feel like not enough is being done uh, because, yeah, we can start to, first of all, identifying or locating the tattoo is like a big thing. And so it frustrates me sometimes when, um, you know, I'm under the impression from communication with individuals uh, in the field that if you don't see the tattoo and it's not glaring and right in front of you, then, you, you know, you don't pay attention to it. Meaning like if we do have charred remains, if we do have decomposed remains, uh, if we do have a lot of these old cases, uh, the tattoos may be overlooked or they may be identified but improperly described or labeled. Um, and, and so that kind of drives me crazy because we have these cases where just the presence of a tattoo maybe enough. Like we're, we're humans, we're visual people, right? So we see something, we remember it, uh, and then we see it again and we're like, oh, we, we make those connections. Like we've been learning to do that since we were kids. And so the uh, this case that you mentioned uh, is really bittersweet to me because on the one hand, awesome. Like we identified this individual, uh, we have closure, and now we have the opening of a, a murder investigation, right? Which you know, is, is good. We're making progress here, but it annoys me that it's 31 freaking years that have gone by. And now I will give credit in this case, 31 years ago, we didn't have the internet. We didn't have social media. We didn't have these networks to communicate, especially like, as I mentioned earlier with the siloing, right. Uh, even within one organization, forget other organizations, but now like 
you know, this woman was found in Belgium. She's from the UK, right? So we can't keep this stuff close to home. You can't just distribute this in like the local neighborhood and said, you know, do you recognize this? Because it may be people travel the world now. People are all over the place. Um, so for me, the fact that we're not doing more with cold cases, we're not doing more uh, with current cases drives me bananas. Like we should be putting these tattoos out there. That's why whenever I'm contacted by a law enforcement agency, I put the tattoo out there with a little bit of a backstory and just kind of like let it sit. Or when I see these cases uh, in the news, uh, you know, send them out to the public because it's so closed off what we could be doing with tattoos that we don't. Um, but yeah, we could do the basic things like the visual identification. Just have you seen this tattoo? Do you recognize this tattoo? Um, all the way up to the potential of even, which can get a little dicey, the um, the interpretation, right? And I know actually that's how you and I started talking. I don't know if you remember, it was the Aaron Hernandez case, uh, mm -hmm. right? So there was a case where, you know, when I'm talking about the football player, uh, you know, uh, for the Patriots at the time, right, who where in court, they're trying to look at his tattoos. He was alive, right? But he was charged with murder. And they're trying to interpret his tattoos, right? Does this tattoo have symbolism? Does this uh, depiction of a firearm uh, or a, uh, a cartridge case indicate that he had committed murder, right? So then we see that interpretation can be really useful, maybe if we're looking for affiliations with gangs, uh, for relationships or for anything like that. But we have to be careful when we start trying to interpret it and linking it to people, you know, being involved in criminal acts. But, you know, the interpretation of a tattoo can be useful and help draw connections. Um, just the characteristics of the tattoo. For example, a lot of my grad students I had doing research on um, temporary tattoos. Uh, you know, how often do people look for temporary tattoos? We see now that, you know, whether it's like the little kid with the sticker uh, or it's the lick and stick, you know, from when we were kids, or even now with these more elaborate temporary tattoos for people that don't want to commit or are afraid of the pain. Um, no comment, right? Um, but, uh, you know, we see like that even identifying the tattoo can help us try and figure out where it came from or what it is. Is it temporary? Is it permanent? When was it made? All that kind of fun stuff. And then we can start to get into the actual analysis of the inks. Well, the inks, um, you know, that are in the bottle or the inks that may end up being in human skin or in tissue, right? And being able to see if we can draw connections and say, hey, we can't resolve this tattoo because the body's too decomposed or it's charred, but we do detect yellow pigment. We do detect green pigment. So we think this was a yellow and green tattoo located here, whatever. Um, so I think tattoos are underutilized. I think that if they're not present, you know, like people should be using infrared photography, they should be using alternate light sources, they should be scanning these bodies to see, hey, even though it's decomposed or it's charred or mummified, you know, there may still be a tattoo there. And that's like instant, right? Everything has to go to the lab for DNA analysis, you know, and people forget our databases are only as good as what we have in them. So if someone's not in a DNA database, right, if someone doesn't have their fingerprints on file, if someone doesn't have dental records, right? They're not, they're not in that database to begin with. But with a tattoo, you can take a beautiful photo. You can put it out there to the public and just start to get those investigatory leads that can help you, you know, move a case forward. Yeah. I mean, they're so identifying. And even if you go into, I mean, a lot of 
older older cases, I would say, especially especially with women and stuff, it's like you would walk into a tattoo shop and you would pick off of the wall like a, a flash, mm-hmm. right? But now as time goes on, it's going to be like most most places don't even do that anymore. It's like everything's custom drawn and it's just very specific to to an individual, their tattoo. And I think it I mean it it's just like an awesome way to identify it's probably the most significant identifying factor without showing their dead face or something. You know what I mean? That that might not even look like them anyway. Yeah. Um speaking of like the Aaron Hernandez is it Hernandez case? Um you were saying about the court, them talking about it in court. Is that something that you've ever done or or would you be asked to to ever testify in court as it pertains to a tattoo in a forensic case? So I have testified in court as an expert forensic scientist uh, from my time at the police department. Um, I have not testified uh, as an, a tattoo expert yet. The opportunity just hasn't arisen. And, um, you know, I would love to be more involved with these cases. Uh, a lot of the work that I've done uh, in terms of consulting has been more pro bono. Um, simplified of whether it's posting something on my Instagram, being asked to look at something and just kind of see if there's an interpretation, if there's any clues, uh, or just ask my opinion about something. So for me, it's not about like consulting, making money, testifying in court and, you know, being this big deal. It's about like helping to identify these individuals. I mean, but sure, like, you know, I've had calls from, you know, law enforcement agencies that think of they want to hire me. And then all of a sudden, you know, once they, you know, find out what it entails, uh, you know, I never hear from them again. You know, so people also, I think, are not willing to invest the time and energy and figure, yeah, we'll just let it ride. We'll rely on DNA or we have too much other stuff to worry about, uh, you know. And so that's a shame, like, you know, that that I'm not called on more because it would just be really nice to to, you know, work some of these cases and and solve some of them or at least get some investigatory leads that, you know, can be worked uh, to get these cases going. This episode is brought to you by The Gross Room. If you love this podcast and you love my Instagram account, you will love The Gross Room. Every week we have lots of cases of articles discussing celebrity deaths and high-profile deaths. And since we are going on our fourth year, you have thousands of photos, videos, and articles to catch up on. This Friday, December 15th, for only five days, The Gross Room is going on sale for only $20 for the year. Treat yourself this holiday season to gross. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. In two, I know back in 2015, you wrote a book about all of all of your findings and your research on forensics and tattoos. And it it 
is this a book that's specifically geared towards forensic scientists or is this a book that I could buy for one of my friends who's a tattoo artist and just is really interested in tattoos? So when I wrote the book, um, I did, it's a mix, right? So uh, I wanted to include some of the chemistry and some of the information from my doctoral work so that it was somewhere, right? So someone can look at this if they're, say, a pathologist can flip open a book and see my images, you know, my uh, from the microscope of what these tattooings look like under the microscope to what they look like when they're analyzed chemically. So there is that certain like forensic element that's geared towards forensic scientists, pathologists. But I also wanted to make it readable and usable for the average individual or, you know, a tattoo artist or a tattoo aficionado, a lawyer, whatever. Uh, and so there are elements there where I start talking about the history and I go through the the history of inks and I go through, uh, you know, court cases where tattoos have been used. Uh, so in my mind, you know, I tried to make it as uh, broad as I could, but I know some people may look at it and say, OK, I see chemistry. I see chemical structures like you're just, you know, that's too much. Um, but there's a little bit in there for everyone to hopefully like see where where I'm trying to go with the importance of tattoos in a forensic context. I think I think discussing the tattoos is is a really important thing that's not discussed enough as you would as you're saying especially because so so many people in the population now have one or multiple tattoos. It's 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 like it's a really high number. Last time I checked it was it was like 70% of the population has at least one tattoo or something. I mean that's a lot. And Recently on uh, Instagram, I had done two different mystery diagnoses that involved tattoos. One was a person that had the tattoo pigment in their lymph nodes and was presenting with lymphadenopathy. And the other one was a woman that had her tattoos eyebrowed or her eyebrows tattooed in another country. And she ended up getting a, an infection because they think that the water in that country was mixed with some of the tattoo anchor pigment and then it was tattooed in her and that's how she got that weird bacteria in her body. But um I'll never forget I was doing I I had I was working in pathology. Now this was back like 15 years ago, but we got lymph nodes on a patient with breast cancer and the pathologist was looking under the microscope to see if she had metastatic tumor. And then he was just like, this is really weird. There's like all this black stuff in her lymph node and I wonder what this is and and so and so. And then he called the surgeon during the surgery and was like, is there a reason that you could think that she would have like all this weird black stuff? And then the the surgeon was like, yeah, her whole entire arm is tattooed. And the pathologist like kind of had never seen that, which it was I mean, it was 15 years ago. And this is going to increase as time goes on just because more people are getting tattooed. But it was interesting to me that I'm like, oh, this was nothing that you ever learned or heard of until today right now. Like, you know what I mean? It's it's kind of nuts. Which is crazy because there are pathologists that were writing about this in the 1800s. So I did this, uh, you know, great, uh, well, I mean, just ask me, I think it was great. Uh, this, <laughs> uh, this entry for um, a French uh, medical legal um, uh, forensic pathology text. And that's one of the things I talk about is, uh, you know, how a lot of these pathologists, especially in Europe in the 1800s, right, when we're starting to think about uh, the idea of forensic science really gaining steam, which is another thing that drives me crazy because 
the younger generation, I don't know if they're being taught this or they just think this, but they believe forensic science started like during the OJ case, you know, and, oh with, God. And, and with the introduction of, um, you know, DNA analysis. So a lot of people seem to think like forensic scientists, science was like invented in the 80s or the 90s, right? With, wow. Know, <laughs> but yeah, people were talking about this in the 1800s. You find these references to, you know, being able to detect, um, you know, these pigments in the lymph nodes. So this is something that's been around for a, a very long time. And yet, yeah, I mean, people are just not aware of the history. And that was another reason for, you know, the reason why I wanted to do this book was because I wanted to trace the history of these inks uh, and, you know, how these inks have evolved all the, over time, uh, you know, which is important too, because everyone says, ah, oh, you know, you're going to get a tattoo and, you know, uh, you're going to die. Um, but all right, I'm a little dramatic there. Let me be, let me be. Uh, but you know, you see these individuals that are like Otzi, you know, tattoo, you know, so long ago, you know, and, uh, you know, these things stick around and they're such great traces and they can definitely be used for so many important things. Uh, you know, but it's not new and that's, you know, something important as well is that I knew when I was doing my research that, yeah, there were maybe a database here of tattoos and meanings, or maybe someone had studied inks mostly for the medical, you know, dermatological, whatever, but to put it all together and kind of isolate it was what was really important for me when I did my research and also, you know, came up with the book, you know, so people know these things are, are you know, they exist, you know. Yeah, it's, it's really great. Speaking of tattoo meanings, I think that I have a forensic book. I, I feel like I sent you a picture of this once that it's from the 50s. It's like an old forensic book and it has a picture of a guy's hand with a sparrow and it just what? says, oh, this indicates that this person is a homosexual. <laughs> and and then like I have tattoos of spider webs on my elbows, which in the past used to mean that you did time in jail or something and of people getting a teardrop uh, a tattoo on their face under their eye and all these things that Sometimes things used to have a certain meaning and now they don't. Or sometimes like nope. I got it just because I was kind of like, oh, I, I'm like a cute. What, how old was I? 17 or 18 when I got it? Like, I'm a cute little girl and getting like yeah. this is so ironic and cool, you know, whatever. <laughs> but um, it, it's interesting that people like like scholarly people sit there and write about like what certain tattoos mean and stuff. I just always thought that was interesting. Um. All right. So let's talk about a couple of weeks ago, I texted you and asked you if you wanted to be on the show, obviously, to talk about this stuff. And you told me that you were in Australia, which was so cool. So why were you there? So I was in Australia for the International Association of Forensic Sciences um, International Conference, which was awesome. And, and my purpose for being there was uh, professional purpose for being there was uh, twofold. Um, so first it was to promote what my colleagues and I have come up with called the Sydney Declaration. And it really is kind of like trying to reclaim forensic science, uh, you know, from the perspective of the scientists, because it's gotten so off, you know, off track. There's so much forensic science everywhere. It's saturated, uh, you know, and who dictates our science, right? Is it lawyers? Is it judges? Is it uh, you know, law enforcement agencies. And so one of the big things was to talk and promote about, uh, to talk about and promote the declaration. Uh, and the other one, which is something that's um, very important to me is um, I gave a plenary talk on uh, sexual and gender-based violence, especially in regions of conflict. 
Um, and so one of the things that really interests me is the quality of international investigations and the quality of forensic science uh, that's being done when we look at, um, you know, world events, uh, you know, mass chaos and, and all this kind of crazy stuff where there's sexual and gender based violence. Uh, you know, why is it such that there are not a lot of cases that are prosecuted in international courts? Uh, why is there not necessarily justice? And, you know, can we do better uh, as forensic scientists in collecting traces and uh, preserving traces that can be used? Uh, you know, because generally speaking, a lot of these investigations um, are kind of based on eyewitness testimony or based on uh, statements from the victim or survivor of these events, uh, which can be very traumatic. Uh, and so is there a way to improve the quality of forensic investigations and forensic science in that respect of dealing with, you know, sexual and gender-based violence in regions of conflict? While you were in Australia, this is, <laughs> this will be my favorite part of the interview. While you were there, you learned some interesting facts about koalas and chlamydia. Can you please explain what you learned there. <laughs> okay, so let me preface this by saying, I know I'm going to say this, and I was so super excited, and there's going to be people out there that are going to be like, oh my God, how did you not know this? Look, I did not know this at all, but apparently- I didn't know, I never was, heard it. <laughs> apparently, everyone was like, oh yeah, you didn't know? And I was like, what kind of education did I get? So for those of you who just don't know, so koalas have rampant chlamydia, right? I had no idea not a clue. Everyone's like, well, be careful. Don't touch the koala. You know, and they're telling me like a lot of people don't like koalas, which I learned that too, because you look and you're like, oh, they're adorable. And people are like, oh, they're so disgusting. And hence that's where the chlamydia came up. But yeah, so I learned koalas have chlamydia. Never heard of that. Never heard of that either. Absolutely never yeah. heard of that. <laughs> Everyone looked at me like I was a box of rocks because I did not know that. And like, and I will tell you all out there, if you are interested in forensic science, it is okay to say you don't know something, uh, you know, but uh, yeah, I had no clue. And so that was the focus of our conversation, right? So we started talking about tattoos and doing this podcast. And then once I dropped the chlamydia bomb on you, uh, which could mean so many things out of context. Um, yeah. So, so that's uh, what I learned about koalas and chlamydia. So they apparently just eat, sleep, and do their thing. So there's and and there's human transmission. Is that that's the that's why they're saying that you shouldn't be holding them and stuff. Like there's a way somehow. I mean, because I'm not a hundred percent sure about the transmission of it. I I feel like it would have to be some kind of contact with an infected fluid into your body this like the same way you would get it sexually right so is that is that the concern like you know how they say you shouldn't handle reptiles because they carry salmonella mm -hmm. and, a, and a child could like touch their butt by accident and put their hand in their mouth and then all of a yep. sudden i mean i guess in theory if if it if the chlamydia somehow gets on your hand and then you rub that finger in your eye you could transmit it <laughs> Where, <laughs> I mean, I guess I don't know. Now I really want to look into this because I'm really interested because I just look at them as like, oh, I want one as a pet. They look like cuddly yeah. little stuffed animals. <laughs> yeah, but cute little buggers. But um, yeah, I, I honestly don't know. And I probably should have looked into this since I knew we were going to go down this chlamydia road. 
Um, but yeah, I don't know, but you know, I'm not going to make out with the damn koala. Like, you know, let's let, let's not make it weird. I guess maybe also because they have like those long little cloy things, like maybe potentially they can scratch, but I don't know anything about koala to human transmission or if we can transmit to them and make their lives worse. I have no clue, but, um, you know, because I was just so overwhelmed with the fact that koalas have chlamydia that I just, I still can't get past it. <laughs> I know. I can't either. It's it's so crazy. Okay. So for, for those of you that don't know, you have an excellent Instagram account that's forensic underscore tattoo. And you have close to 100,000 followers. So like a lot of people are already into it. But can you explain to us like what made you start this Instagram account and what your experience has been with it? Um, so I was actually started to pick up, you know, doing a lot of interviews. And one of the individuals that interviewed me was like, I'll check on Instagram. And I was like, social media, all of this shit. Sorry. Um, but yeah, so I created the Instagram account. Uh, and then I have to thank you because, you know, I'm just kind of waiting out there, just like trying to navigate, you know, social media as a, an adult is, is difficult. Um, you know, and so then you and I connected and that certainly helped. Um, and so I, I actually really love it. I have not posted in a very long time. Um, and it's partly because I've been so busy. I, when I create my posts, when I curate them, I am a fact checker. Like I don't like giving, I I like giving the most accurate information I can, considering a lot of them come from news sources and are very limited. So for me, it's a lot of involvement to create a post, right? To actually, because I will check multiple sources. I like to have more than three sources where they're at least consistently saying the same thing. But I can also use that to my advantage because when someone says a tattoo on the left shoulder, a tattoo on the right shoulder, then I'm like, look, even the media can't get it straight. Or it's a tattoo of a dog. No, it's a wolf. No, it's this. No, you know, so... Um, I can use that to my advantage to say, look, I've checked all these things. Here's a consistent story. But notice that there's variation even with the location uh, or the description, which is drives me crazy, too, because just post the damn picture of the tattoo. Right. Don't give me like this like novella about your description of it because you heard it from a cop who heard it from a detective who was at the autopsy. Right. So you get all these different, um, you know, accounts of the tattoo. And sometimes it's difficult to even get the photograph of the tattoo. Um, but so I put a lot of time into my posts and uh, you, you know how it is. You know, then you write this nice, beautiful thing and then people are annoyed at you because you didn't explain one thing and they don't realize you have a word count. Uh, you know, and then, uh, you know, most people are really receptive and really interested uh, you know, and then you get people that just are like some sucky and you're just like, come on, you know, like I'm doing the best I can here. We're getting this information out, you know, see the value of, uh, you know, promoting the purpose of tattoos or helping to disseminate this information so that maybe this individual can be identified. Um, so I do love uh, Instagram, you know, the social media aspect of it, although I haven't used it in a while. Uh, maybe I'll be inspired. Like I'm looking, I guess, for inspiration to make sure people still want to hear my voice, you know, because sometimes I feel like it's the echo chamber where I'm just like, tattoos are so great. Let's use them. And then, you know, then I see like my followers decrease and I'm like, okay, all right, no problem. So, uh, you know, that's a little frustrating, but, you know, hopefully the message is out there. 
I could I understand that because I feel the same exact way. But I think that there's been over the past couple of years, there's been like a change in Instagram that everybody can agree with. And it is like I'm in the same boat. Like I put hours of time into writing posts and stuff. And then it's like they'll get posted. Nobody will see it. It'll get deleted because it violates something mm-hmm. that it doesn't really violate. It's and it it's it is stressful to the point where. I mean, in the past couple of years, I've just been like not anywhere near on the level I used to be on it because it, it's just like it, it's like a beat down all the time. Yeah. There's only so much you want to deal with that, you know, but I I do think that you should because I don't I, I even think like you're saying the followers going down and stuff. That's like all an Instagram problem. That's not like your content problem. I, I personally feel because I've just I just saw a change and talking to other influencers and stuff. I, I think that they see it as well across the board. So it's, it's not, I think you should keep doing what you're doing. Cause it's not that it's just, I, I just think it's like an Instagram problem, not a, not a you problem. It's but, you um, Instagram. So, <laughs> I know. Right. And I agree with you too, with the negative experiences. It's always somebody's like, number one, you, you and I are human. So it's like, you will make mistakes from time to time, even if it's just like a simple spelling error or something. And then uh, obviously, like you, you'll spend hours writing up this whole thing, and then some jerk has to call you out and be like, "Yeah, but you didn't mention this," and mm-hmm. and you're like, "Yeah, I have like I don't even know what it is on Instagram how many characters you're allowed to have now." But every single time I write something, I have to like Cut water it, it down because yep. yeah, because you can't put everything; it's not possible. And if you really like put the text that's in an Instagram post in a Word document, it's like it's a small little paragraph, so. You only could fit so much stuff yeah. in, in a post. Um, so are, do you have, so you said you're not really posting on Instagram. Do you have any other social media that you're on or you just kind of are like, I, I mean, I get it because I'm over it too, but do you, do you do stuff on like Twitter or anything? I have a Twitter account, but you know, again, it's like, you know, you put that stuff out in the ether and it just kind of like, I don't, you know what it is? I feel weird. I'm one of those people that's like, Twitter is like that person that opens up their window and just yells something out to the world. You know what I mean? Like I always, that always stuck with me because I feel like it's just like, you know, you just say something and are people listening? Are they not? Are they liking? Are they retweeting? Like, like, it's just, I don't know. I'm like, so I don't know. I'm not that kind of person that believe it or not, although I spent like half this time talking about myself, I'm not that kind of person that like, just really likes to talk about myself or try to bring extra attention to myself you know when I you know you don't see me doing makeup tutorials and then going I love tattoos yeah uh you know so it's not my jam to really be like that so I do don't you love my extra long answers for everything so no I don't have a Twitter they're, they're good they're good <laughs> I do have a Twitter account but I don't really use it because I, I like whatever uh I'm TikTok I can't so as a forensic scientist, as someone who is in a program, uh, you know, that is big on digital forensics and, and digital forensic investigations, I'm like very personally wary of TikTok. And I'm also like, I, I'm very cautious with um, use of computers and, and technologies anyway. Um, so, you know, I don't want all my information out there in general. Um, but yeah, I just can't be like dancing around and be like, oh, let me tell you about death today. Oh, TikTok. Yeah. Like, or, I know, know right? It's so weird. Yeah, I can't make it go like I can be goofy or I could be, you know, my formal, you know, Dr. Miranda is talking about technical 
stuff. But I mean, like to mix those two together and be doing the running man while I'm talking about, you know, like a crime scene investigation is just like weird to me. You know, so I haven't gone on the uh, TikTok bandwagon. I pretty much just stick to Instagram and, you know, let it ride. Yeah, it's I feel the same way. It's it's really gimmick, like gimmicky. I can't I can't do it either. I mean, my daughter like made a TikTok for us and she deals with it. I, I don't even know how to log in. I don't know how to log into it. I don't understand what it is. And I have no interest. I'm just too old. But all right. So. You are an associate professor in the Center for Criminal Justice Studies at Farmingdale State College um, or College State University of New York. When did you when did you start working there? So I think I've been there for like 12 years now, roughly. Well, that's that's impressive. Yeah. yeah. And and so you you're a professor of students. What what's this? Do you have students from all different majors or what what is the typical major of a person that you're teaching at the school? So most of my students are criminal justice. Uh, a lot of them want to go into law enforcement. Uh, but, you know, as we see the changing tide with criminal justice and policing, uh, we've seen a lot more students that are interested in something else other than policing or law enforcement. You know, they say, you know, I know criminal justice is where I want to be. I just don't know where. And so some of them may want to go into law. Some of them may want to go into like um, uh, victim services, working with victims or survivors, uh, juvenile delinquency, um, or even, you know, probation, parole, like the back end. So we're seeing like, uh, you know, this changing tide of the criminal justice student landscape. But it's kind of cool. At first, I was like, I'm like a forensic scientist. I should be in a lab and doing science and have my little microscopes and my spectrometers. And I should be just analyzing evidence with students all day. So when I went into a criminal justice program, I was like, eh. but I actually really enjoy it because I can teach the criminal justice students. Like I mentioned before the Sydney Declaration and I mentioned before, um, like my thoughts on crime scene investigation, which again is a whole other topic. But I can teach them the importance of like critical thinking and problem solving and how important that can be to the work that they do uh, if they become a detective, right? So what does criminal investigation entail? What does crime scene investigation reconstruction entail? When should you say, I don't know, I need to call in a forensic expert, whether it be a scientist or a pathologist or even a more specialized expert, whether it's an entomologist or anthropologist. But giving these individuals the opportunity to like be or go into law enforcement, possibly be detectives one day, possibly be bosses, and for them to be a little bit more cautious with how they address the crime scene, uh, you know, is something that I really enjoy teaching. And I hope that they take that with them and then remember like, ah, oh, Miranda told me not to touch this. You know, like Miranda told me to call in the expert, uh, you know, so hopefully, uh, you know, they'll take those lessons away with them, you know. And so that's been pretty cool to work with criminal justice students. Yeah, I think it's important to have a teacher like you in college because you you also like when I, I remember when I was in school and I first started seeing that I was interested in the microscope and stuff. It's like you have some biology teachers that went to school for biology and then they just became professors. And then, but my one teacher was a microbiologist that worked in a hospital and she was the most, she was like a pivotal person in, in my life and my career because she had so much experience like working in the real world and kind of guiding me towards 
towards like what I wanted to do based upon like what I was telling her I liked. So it's awesome to have a teacher like you because you have so much experience from so many different areas of the field. And I think you're making like a huge impact on their life. I'm like, you probably like are just sit back and say, oh, whatever. I, I, I don't think I do, but they, they probably just think that you're awesome. I'm sure. Cause I would love to have a teacher like you, obviously. <laughs> um, Thank you. So I know that I know you're a, a, an expert in tattoos, but do you have any tattoos yourself? Yes. Uh, so most of my tattoos you cannot see when I'm wearing clothes. Uh, most <laughs> of my tattoos are on my neck and my back. You know how the rest of the song goes. I'm just yeah. joking. <laughs> That's me with like a you know my my good old dad joke. Um, so yeah, most of my tattoos are located on my back, my side, and a couple on my wrists. Um, yeah, so I am I am officially tattooed. How, did you have them before you started all of this research in this field, or you you've gotten them more recently? Uh so I did. I was tattooed before I started my research, and then from there I started to. I did get a tattoo for my research, so I got a tattoo on my wrist uh, that was specifically designed based upon um, the I uh, the Ice Maiden. Uh, found um, uh, mummified remains of, of a female uh, that was believed to be high ranking in her society. So I did get her tattoo on my wrist and I added color to it so that I could actually look at it under the microscope with the instrumentation. Oh, I wanted cool. to see yeah, if I could blast it with the laser and actually detect the pigments in my skin. Uh, so I did get that for my research. And then uh, the other ones have kind of been linked when I got my book. Uh, you know, I tattooed uh, something very large for when my book came out, when I finished my uh, my PhD, uh, and then I've gotten sort of things that are linked to some of the other publications and work that I've done. So a lot of them, again, we were talking about like meaning and interpretation. You know, I believe sometimes a tattoo is just a tattoo, right? Sometimes you just pick something out. You're like, that's cool. I just want it. Uh, but for me, my tattoos, uh, a lot of them have, you know, meaning to me that other people may not get and probably would think um you know a sociopath i guess because if you have like skulls or weird things on your body you know something wrong with you according to you know some society people <laughs> um but uh yeah so i do have a lot of tattoos and they've kind of been little um you know milestones in my career that have been important to me yeah that's cool i i have like a combination of both and another thing too is like what you would pick at some age because i got my first tattoo when I was 15, I think 15 or 16, and then started getting most of my tattoos when I was in my late teens and early 20s, which I probably wouldn't get the same things today. <laughs> but um, I have a mixture of like, okay, I just think butterflies are cool. And I have a lot of them. And then I have other ones that are super meaningful. So I get yeah, that. That's cool. So when and you did, did when, you do? I'm sorry, I'm totally cutting you off. No. Um, now I'm going to interview you. No, uh, you did uh, some some blacking out too, right? Yeah, it's just the whole, it, it was just, the only reason that I did it is because my leg tattoos have just started when I was 17 and just tried to fix it and tried to fix it and just made it progressively worse. So then I started, I was like, oh, I'll just black out my whole leg and I got half of it done and then I never finished it. And instead I should have 
probably just attempted to get it lasered maybe i don't know and now it's i don't even want to think about lasering that much skin so i just kind of leave it alone and yeah i'm just i'm just over it i just i i had a, a three kids natural childbirth i'm just like i'm old and i'm over being in pain anymore like i just don't <laughs> i just need a break for right now i haven't gotten tattooed in a while it's just and I don't know if I ever told you know I have like that weird I skin thing that I end up getting with yes. the, the sun exposure. Yep. And I also from time to time get asthma attacks when I get tattooed. And I don't know I don't know what that's about, but that's another concern. Like, do I really need to be um I mean, whatever if I have to take the nebulizer, but like there was a couple times I had to go to the emergency room because I just I, I couldn't I, I couldn't make it go away by myself. And I thought that that was kind of a little ridiculous to be going, having to go to the emergency room for asthma because I'm getting tattooed. It's, I have kids and stuff. It's just yeah. like, it's not, it's not worth it to me. Yeah, that's a little, um, little much. I know, right? It's just, <laughs> um, and I'm just, I'm just over it. It's like, it's just been all of my life. I'm just over it. Um, since we're both women that work in the this, this kind of creepy field of death and, I personally think that we're both very normal people, <laughs> but people think that we're weird because we like to be around dead people or whatever. Um, so what are what? Obviously, you're a person and everybody thinks that you should, you know, you should wear black all the time and, and just you're always into death and skulls and everything. But like, what are some things that you like to do outside of forensics that that maybe could be a little bit more relatable to the average woman? <laughs> All right, so I will I will check those boxes out. Yeah, I love to wear black. Uh, as you can see, I'm dressed very brightly right now, I'm wearing gray. Um, but yeah, I I do like uh, you know long walks in the cemetery. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I love to travel. Travel is like really important to me, especially since COVID. I love uh, seeing the world, and I do actually love visiting cemeteries in other countries to see like you know how people treat the dead. Uh, you know, how people decorate and the symbolism of like, uh, you know, tombstones. So I do have that little creepy side of me, um, you know, that's added to my travel. Um, I like to travel. I like to shop. <laughs> I'm the big girl. Um, no, I, I like the older I get, like I keep going through these phases where I'm like, okay, instead of having more of like cheaper stuff, I want less of more expensive stuff. Does that make sense? Yeah, um, I'm, I'm the same way. Yeah. So I find myself, um, you know, treating myself more than I probably should. <laughs> um, but like if I do a little, you know, if I do some good work, I'm like, let me go to Chanel. Um, oh, uh, yeah. so I do uh, really like that. I like, um, you know, I'm like an art nerd. I'm like a fashion nerd. I know it sounds like super bizarre because like I would not wear like half the things that I like love and see. But like, um, I don't know, it's a very weird, quirky things. Uh, but uh I'm trying to think of something I would do that's very, what's some girly? What's a girly thing I do? Just like, you you don't knit every night or something. <laughs> just, I don't even mean that. Like, I don't, I don't really do, I don't do anything like that either. But just like, I, I like gardening and I like taking care of my plants, just like other stuff that, but obviously I, I feel the same way. Like we, we travel not not internationally, but we take road trips a lot. And every single time I go on a road trip, I'm always like, okay, what? who got murdered here? And like, yep. what could I write about this? You know, so I mean, there's definitely that 
And then I bring my kids and my husband along too because they're on the trip with me. So I'm like, we have to we have to go on this haunted tour in a hearse. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, are you working on any other projects right now? I know you just got done doing this big lecture, so you're probably just like trying to chill after that big trip and everything. I am always, I'm one of those people that's always on. Like I always am and I'm writing or looking at stuff. Like I am that like I um like fusing like forensic science and pop culture and like I mentioned earlier like forensic science and art so I'm like one of those people that like I watch a movie or a new tv show like okay they just came out like the fall of the house of usher right so I'm like watching that show and I always am constantly like trying to break it down see like the elements of it horror forensic science you know where does it all tie in and stuff so for projects right now, I'm doing some more, um, you know, wacky pop culture stuff and um, always tattoo stuff is always something that's just going to be with me forever. Uh, you know, I have some grad students doing research and uh, I guess, uh, you know, you've inspired me. So maybe I should start making some more Instagram posts and get back into that gig because, you know, I, I do like sharing that knowledge. Um but yeah, I, I am trying to take a little bit of a breather for like the holiday. And then once like January hits, I'll be back hitting the ground running with some crazy, wacky ideas of, I don't know, whatever. Yeah, the, so the social media thing is like one thing, like a tip I could give to you that I find useful is like I do a thing called mystery diagnosis and I call it like mystery Monday and it forces me to do it every single Monday because I'm like, I can't push this off till tomorrow. It's not Monday. It has to be done on Monday. And I'm pretty, I, I take off a couple times a year, like for Christmas or something. But for the most part, it's like, all right, I'm going to make this commitment that every single Monday I'm posting and, and it just, it works because it's, there's no, there's no procrastination allowed with it because <laughs> it is, it is annoying. Trust me. Um, But all right, so we could find you and we're going to, push people there because we and that's going to force you to start posting more at forensic underscore tattoo and also i just got your book i don't know why i don't have it yet but i don't but i just got it it's on the way so then i'm gonna have to uh, be forced to actually meet you in person and so you could sign it for me but it's called forensic analysis of tattoos and tattoo inks and it was on amazon and it was on ebay and stuff so i think any person that's interested in forensics should get it. I'm I'm really excited to see it because obviously I, I'm into tattoos and I'm into forensics. So I think it'll be awesome. I can't wait. Um, is there anything else you want to tell anybody or? No, it's been great spending time with you. It's always a good time. <laughs> yeah. Thanks so much for being here today. It was, it was really great. And um, I hope that we get to hear more from you because I think that you have so much to offer women in forensics and it's just it's just really great what you're doing thank you yeah there's there's layers here but you know i think <laughs> i think that women should be you know pushing it a little bit and uh you know get out there and you know do and you know it doesn't necessarily have to be dna like we find a lot of uh females in the dna field but go into traces go into microscopy go into investigations uh you know in crime scene reconstructions and and push push the envelope there a little bit you know when you google a lot of forensic science heroes you know you see a lot of the traditional you know white male faces come back at you you know so it would like it would be good to see some more women really 
uh, pushing it with forensic science in the field and with research. And so that's what I'd really love to see. Yeah, I, I think it's hard because it's just it's just people people don't know. And that's and and interviews like this are great because just it's just like another job you could learn about that you can do if you have interest in it. So thank you again so much for being here today. You're welcome. It was great to see you. Thank you for listening to Mother Knows Death. As a reminder, my training is as a pathologist assistant. I have a master's level education and specialize in anatomy and pathology education. I am not a doctor and I have not diagnosed or treated anyone, dead or alive, without the assistance of a licensed medical doctor. This show, my website, and social media accounts are designed to educate and inform people based on my experience working in pathology so they can make healthier decisions regarding their life and well-being. Always remember that science is changing every day and the opinions expressed in this episode are based on my knowledge of those subjects at the time of publication. If you are having a medical problem, have a medical question, or are having a medical emergency, please contact your physician or visit an urgent care center, emergency room, or hospital. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Mother Knows Death on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere you get podcasts. Thanks.